Hey, another great episode of Roundup is coming up next. If you like what you heard, please go online to redsearadio.org and donate, become a monthly sustaining member, and keep us on the air. Thank you and God bless. Palestine, Texas. You're first out of the shoot this morning. First billing for Palestine. KINF finally did it. And then KYAR. Good morning. And good morning, KEDC. This is Red Sea Roundup. Yeah. Some uh, maybe unexpected voices on the radio this morning in the Roundup slot. It's new time. Right, Dennis? This is indeed our new time slot on uh, Wednesday at 11 a.m. We love it. Wednesday at 11 a.m. It's our new slot. It's taking advantage of all the great changes that have come down the line from Relevant Radio. We're happy to be with you today on this beautiful Holy Feast Day of All Saints. Happy Feast of All Saints, Thaddeus. Happy Feast of All Saints, Dennis. And happy Feast of All Saints to Michael. Our intern, whose microphone is turned down currently. There we go. Let me turn it up there. Hey, guys. Hey, Michael. Happy Michael Ashauer, whose uncle I went to college with. Tom. Howdy, Tom, if you're listening. I don't know if he's listening in Georgia, though. He's in Georgia. Georgia? Mississippi. Mississippi. But he's coming back to Texas. So. All right. All right. Well, hey, maybe... Uh, Maybe if he lives in East Texas, we'll be uh, building a station there, maybe in Copper's Cove. You know, keep us in prayers as Red Sea Catholic Radio is expanding according to God's will. And uh, we want to uh, do everything we can to share the great news of Red Sea Catholic Radio and Catholic Church through the airwaves. So thanks be to God. Yeah, and um, we've got an exciting interview coming up in the second part of the uh, show. It's a pre-recorded I did it yesterday with uh, Professor Steve Weidenkopf. On, uh, he's a historian, Catholic historian, and he's going to be talking about the legacy and the origins of the Reformation. And we know that we have some non-Catholic listeners to our, our station, and we're very, very grateful that you do listen. And we hope that you find this interview uh, interesting and edifying, and we, we really tried to carry it off in a spirit of... Uh, brotherly communication uh, to our separated brethren, our separated Protestant brothers and sisters. So enjoy that. Listen to that. Uh, profit from that. That's coming up in about 10 minutes or Just so. Just a few minutes. Yeah. yeah. We don't have a lot of time. We have a small first part today. You know, I, I reluctantly, as you, you guys in the studio know, I, I kind of grouched and complained about trick-or-treating last night, you know, and all that. I, I did participate. Uh, begrudgingly, I answered the door. Trick or treaters! They open the door. Hey, look at you! You're a little princess. You know, my kids are laughing at me. But you know what? What better thing to do on the 500th commemoration of the Protestant Reformation on Halloween than to hand out candy and Red Sea Catholic radio cards? Oh, so that was my motivating factor. I was wondering if you were if you decided to go with uh, <laughs> handing out some some handbills. I did, I did indeed, and we may we may make that a a, a nice tradition amongst our listeners to yeah. start handing out a whole boatload of 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 uh, red. What sea I'm Catholic surprised about cards. is why didn't you decide to nail 
maybe like a Red Sea banner to your door last night. Then I'd have to repair the hole. Wouldn't that have been more even more apropos? Yeah, maybe. Some kid went back into the yard. He goes, I got a church card. <laughs> I just started laughing. It was pretty fun. At least he didn't throw so, it on the ground. That's good. Yeah, yeah, they did. So hopefully we get some new listeners from this area in our yeah, neighborhood. You let's know. hope so. My kids are going to a Saints Day party today. They're dressing up as saints. Uh, Michael is not Michael, our intern. Michael, my son, is dressing up as St. Louis uh, the Ninth. Okay. Good St. Louis. Uh, Anna Claire is St. Gianna Mola. I'm giving out personal information about my family. Very nice. I really shouldn't do that. Um, Matthew. Well, <laughs> he, let me do Andrew. continues. I think Andrew <laughs> is uh, going to be St. Andrew with a little, like, sheet tied around him and an, and an X because he was crucified on an X-shaped cross. You okay. Know? My favorite, though, is Matthew. Robin put him in a wolf costume, and he's the wolf of Gobio, and he's going to have a little picture, laminated picture of St. Francis. Oh, wow. Pretty, pretty brother, fancy brother schmancy wolf. there. Bro- I, like how, I like how all your children are not going for just the... The regular everyday saints that everyone knows, they're going for the more obscure and oh, thank unique you. ones. Yeah, so, yeah, we're all about like that. obscurantism in my family. I like one saint costume I saw once, uh, Stephen Cutsmode, one of our uh, board members' children way back when was St. Stephen, and he taped a bunch of stones you know, to his, his outfit because St. Stephen was mm-hmm. stoned to death. But Matthew wanted to be St. Sebastian. That's his favorite saint right now, but we were just not sure how we could get the arrows to— you know, stick out of his body. Oh, you can I, always do, I, I, I did that one year. I, I, I should have told you how to what do that. What was your trick? What'd you do? I used uh, coat hangers. I un, unwinded them and, and put them around my waist and kind of like shaped uh-huh. them so that there's like a a hole where you can stick the, the dowels in. So yeah, I did that one year. Nice. You can always go as uh, St. Lawrence and, you know, some barbecue grill stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Now that would take some work to pull that off, <laughs> you know. Attach some your, spray paint to, for the grill marks. Turn me over. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, happy feast of all saints, everyone, our listeners, and we're very happy to have you here on Red Sea Roundup. Thaddeus had some things he was going to cover. Yeah, just real quickly, well. these are these are local to a couple local announcements to the Brazos Valley specifically. Um, Cap Alpha Theta at Texas A and M University is uh, holding their Theta Fest. It's benefiting a local charity for uh, abused children, Scotty's House, and that's on Friday, November 3rd uh, from 6 to 9 p.m. It's at their sorority house on uh, Athens Drive in College Station. You can go to Theta T-H-E-T-A, fest.webs, W-E-B-S, dot com for more information and to participate. And... This is a ways out, and we'll we'll keep announcing this, but this is nice coming off of our recent benefit dinner in the Brazos Valley to uh, honoring Mary as the mother of the, of the domestic church and the end of the year of Fatima, that the traveling international pilgrim virgin statue of Fatima that's been going around the world since 1947 uh, is going to make a stop in College Station on December 9th okay, of this year. It'll be available for veneration from 8 a.m. to 7 p.m. at St. Thomas Aquinas. You can certainly go to stabcs.org for more information. They'll have a full schedule there of events. 
and it's going to be a wonderful occasion of healing, hope, and grace on December 9th at St. Thomas Aquinas. And so our listeners in Waco and in Palestine, please put that on your calendar. Come down and see the International Pilgrim Virgin Statue of Fatima. It's uh, traveling through the rest of the diocese as well. Oh, it is? Okay. uh, I'm looking for the link that I mailed to one of our listeners at some point, uh, but I'm trying to find it. And if I can find it before the uh, end of our time here at the beginning of the show, I will send that link of that information on to you. And our one of our dedicated Facebook uh, correspondents, Miss Pam Mitchell, if you are listening, Miss Mitchell, the Fa- the Fatima statue is coming to, t- to uh, Bryan College Station. You've been asking about that for a long time, waiting for that information, and it's coming. She's December the one I 9th. actually, she's the one I actually that? Yeah, she, sent that information to. So she is very expectant. Yeah, about very seeing about the that. statue. So Miss Mitchell, thank you for all your support and your love for for Red Sea, and we'll hopefully see you at this wonderful event on the ninth. Indeed. Okay. So hey. Driving to work today, Dennis and yes. Michael, and I was listening to Patrick Madrid, and here's a little piece of uh, trivia came out in a conversation he had with a, with a caller. He noted that every year there are more converts pl- to the Catholic Church and births in one year than there are members of the Church of Latter-day Saints yeah, I heard in the entire world. Yeah. Isn't that, that, that is incredible. He was answering a, a, a person's mm-hmm. uh, rebuttal that, well, the, the Mormon church is growing so fast, that's why it's the church. Right. The, that's the evidence that it's, uh, it's God's church. Yeah. But leaving that, the context of that little piece of trivia aside, I wanted to bring that up on the air also to just say there's a, that's a perfect example, I think, of <clears throat> the kinds of information that you can get access to just by listening to the radio, just by That's flipping right, yeah. on Catholic radio and listening in. You're not you're not going to come across a little piece of little factoid like that. Um, probably anywhere else, it would have it would take you a great deal of time to go research that on your on your own and to verify it. Mm-hmm. But you listen to Catholic radio and you get that little nugget, that little, just mm. almost a, I hesitate to say a silver bullet, but that little nugget of information that you yep. can sock away for mm. answering that claim or using yeah. that. That can be a conversation starter with with someone who's who's a Catholic or a fallen away Catholic or a lapsed Catholic or non-Catholic. Yeah. These are great things, of pieces of information that you can get only on Catholic radio because these types of things very obviously are not very often brought up during the mass or the homily. No. But, you know, that's what Red Sea Catholic Radio is here for, is to educate you on all aspects of the faith. And and speaking of education, I do see that it's con- the, the Lady of Our Lady of Fatima statue is coming to Temple and to Georgetown and to Austin. If you go to Fatima, for, I'm sorry, FatimaTourForPeace.com forward slash the tour, and you'll you'll find that information. Okay. Thank you, Dennis, very much. And so uh, just wrapping up here, wanted to just mention and remind people again that they can go to uh, our website, Mm redsearadio.org, 
Go to resources tab. Resources tab and get the uh, mass times for mass today on November 1st at the local area churches. You can those will those will be links that will take you to the there. church websites where mm-hmm. you can get the mass times for today. Yes. So each of the Brazos Valley Church websites and the Central Texas Church websites are listed and linked. You can go to them and if at the very least get a phone number. It is a holy day of obligation. Mm-hmm. So um holy day of opportunity. Yeah. Get yourself to church. And right. with that said, without further ado, we're going to come back on the other side and you're going to hear a, an interview with historian Steve Weidenkopf that I did yesterday on October 31st. Thanks for listening, everybody. Happy Bye-bye Feast now. of All Saints. Welcome back to Red Sea Roundup. This is Thaddeus Romanski. I'm filling in for Pam Marvin today. You're listening to this on Wednesday, November 1st, and I'm going to be bringing on in a few moments Professor Steve Weidenkopf to talk about his new book, The Real Story of Catholic History. But Steve and I are actually talking on Tuesday, October 31st, um, the actual 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, and that's, that's the reason why we're getting together this morning. So on this day, 500 years ago, Martin Luther, the German Augustinian monk, posting his 95 theses uh, on the church door in Wittenberg, Germany, although some t- it's disputed whether that actually happened or not, um, but that's the, that's the tradition. And this is considered to be the beginning date of the Protestant Reformation. Professor Weidenkopf is going to explain to us why it's more proper to understand this as a Protestant revolution. And we don't use that term in a mean-spirited way. We use it to bring greater clarity to what actually happened beginning on this date 500 years ago. So Professor Weidenkopf is going to lay out for us the, the context around Luther's decision to post these 95 theses, where his dissent against the church came from, and the historical circumstances that turned his academic uh, disputation, he was a professor of theology after all, uh, into this explosive revolutionary event. So without further ado, let me bring on Professor Weidenkopf. Good morning, Steve. How are you? Good morning, Thaddeus. Thanks for having me on the show. Steve, before we begin, why don't you, could you tell us about your, your background? Um, you're, you're a professor at Christendom College. How did you, how did you get to, to Christendom? Yeah, actually, you know, my, my title is I'm a lecturer in church history at the Christendom College Grad School. So just to give some background to, the, to your listeners in terms of the Christendom, so there's actually two different campuses to Christendom College. There's 
Christendom College, which is the undergraduate campus out in Front Royal, has uh, a little less than 500 students mm-hmm. and a beautiful, picturesque campus there in the uh, in the Shenandoah Valley with the Blue Ridge Mountains. It's beautiful out there. Uh, and then the graduate school campus is actually located closer into Washington, D.C., one of the suburbs of D.C., Alexandria, Virginia, actually. Okay. And there we have about 100 students or so enrolled. Um, and, uh, you know, how I began the, the journey of teaching there is is, uh, is a kind of a long story, but the short version is... Uh, I went to Syracuse University for my, my bachelor's degree for my undergraduate. While I was there, I, I took a core concentration set of courses in medieval and Renaissance studies and, uh, and really uh, enjoyed that particular period of time, uh, especially the time period in European history when the Church is very, very active, obviously, mm-hmm. uh, in the formation, the beginnings of and in the formation of, of uh, Christendom. And uh, after that, I uh, graduated with my bachelor's and actually got a job working for the federal government for the Department of the Navy for a period of time okay. in Washington, D.C. And then while I was there, while I was in D.C., I heard about this uh, this graduate school. And at that time, it was actually an independent institute. It wasn't affiliated with Christendom yet. Uh, so I went back to school uh, part-time at night and got my master's degree uh, from the from the graduate school there. And then, uh, actually, after I finished with that degree, I actually my, my career took me to uh, Denver, Colorado, where I worked for the, the church, the Archdiocese of Denver, for a while. Um, I worked as the uh, director of the Office of Marriage and Family Life for Archbishop Shapu out there for a number of years. Okay. And then uh, left that, came back to the D.C. area, and uh, the, the grad school was looking for a history professor. And, uh, you know, the professors there knew me, obviously, from my studies before. I had a great love for an interest in history, and I just recently published... Uh, Epic, A Journey Through Church History by Ascension Press, that uh, 20-week adult faith formation program which takes people through um, uh, through church history. Mm-hmm. And so they brought me on, it's now 11 years ago, to uh, to teach church history to the grad students there. Wow, great. What a, st- what a great story, and uh, glad that you're there. Thank you. Um, so today we're speaking on the, the uh, 500th anniversary of the Protestant Revolution. Um, Talk about why why that is, in your opinion, a more actually a more accurate term for the event than the more common term Protestant Reformation, because I think that will lead us into that leads into a lot of what else we'll talk about by starting there. Yeah, sure, and you know it's, it's a term that uh, you know I, I've uh, I've embraced and used used frequently, and it's not just me; it's you know other Catholic historians of the past and even of the current age. Uh, use that that term to describe the events that happened in the 16th century, and and the reason why I use that term in particular, and is that uh, you know when you read through the writings of Luther and of Calvin, Zwingli, and uh, the other early you know so-called reformers, and then you also you know uh, see that in the context of the actions in which they engaged in during this period of time, really what you see is that these men were not not fully engaged in wanting to reform the church, but really what they wanted to do was replace the church with something completely different. Um, you know, Luther, in many of his writings, you know, refers to the Church as the Whore of Babylon, the Pope as the Antichrist, and, you know, he had a very revolutionary, um, you know, violent kind of uh, outlook towards the Church. Whereas a reform, or a reformer, is someone who kind of works within the Church to reform her, to correct abuses, to return her to a, you know, more pristine state, but does so within the confines of the Church and within the confines of, his, of her hierarchical constitution. You have somebody like Luther and Zwingli, Calvin, others. Um, you know, they worked outside of that. They didn't work within the church to to reform her. They they rebelled really against the church. And so I think using the term revolution is much more um, 
you know, accurate to what they actually did. There was a reform of the Church, which was needed, which came later, known as the Catholic Reformation, a little bit later. Um, but, you know, what, what Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, others did was they engaged in this, in this revolution. And it was a revolution not only in theological matters, but also really in, you know, organizational matters in terms of the hierarchy of the Church. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's also a political revolution associated with it as well, which helped kind of spread it and foster it and sustain it. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are many other kinds of things that were going on at the time. Uh, but that's really why I, I tend, that's why I like the phrase Protestant Revolution, because it's a more accurate description of what they did. Now, you said that there was a need for reform in the Church, and I think that's important to uh, describe and, and explain. So, we're talking about the, the 16th century, um, the 1500s. This is Europe during um, a time of mostly monarchy, uh, feudalism. We're in a period of transition out of the Middle Ages. Um, set the set the brief a brief groundwork for our listeners of what what does Europe look like at this time in world history. Yeah, so you know, I mean, you, you kind of hit it there on the net on the on the head in terms of you know it is a transition a transitory period where you're moving out of the Middle Ages, moving out of the kind of feudalism, and moving more into. Um, you know, kind of the beginnings, really, of of the what eventually will become the nation states of Europe. I mean, you have strong monarchies in certain areas of Europe, in France, in uh, in Spain, and in England as well. Um, you know, Germany, where the kind of the the which takes center stage in all of the activity here in the 16th century around the Protestant Revolution, is is really no such thing. I mean, there is no such thing as Germany, frankly, at the time as as we understand it. Right? right. Germany is the United Country didn't come into existence until the late 19th century. So what you have in Germany at the time is a collection, several hundred different collections, really, of you know, uh, dukedoms, principalities, free city-states, all kind of you know, collected into this, this you know, cultural, nominally cultural, nominally united area known as, as the we call Germany that was somewhat controlled, uh, or at least overseen is probably a better way of saying it, uh, by the Holy Roman Emperor. Uh, you know, who at the time of Luther is, uh, is you know, Charles V, um, who's actually, you know, uh, associated with, with the Spanish crown as well. So there, there's a lot of, there's several different major political actors uh, in Christmas time. Obviously, you have the Pope, who's still a strong central or a strong leader, uh, even including a strong temporal ruler in Italy. Um, so that's kind of the stage, the political stage, and, and as, as you see, as we move into this period of time with Luther and whatnot, there's heavy resentment in Germany over the Pope and over the authority of the Pope, and especially over uh, taxation and finances and other things that are going on, that the Germans feel um, a lot of resentment towards Rome, they feel as if they're being slighted, they don't really have a strong uh, ruler who is who is independently minded. Charles V was, was very much devotedly Catholic. And, and devoted at least to uh, to keeping his territory Catholic as much as he could at the time. Now, where is this resentment in Germany about uh, taxation coming from, and how is that also linked up with some of the abuses in uh, the temporal nature of the Catholic Church at this time? Because you did talk again. You mentioned that there was a need for reform. Um, yeah centuries earlier. Yeah, so it's, so it, you know, at this time, which again, it doesn't, these abuses don't necessarily start now in the 16th century. Exactly. They've, they've been 
carrying on, you know, for a number of years, unfortunately, a number, I mean, even, you know, stretching back into the, uh, you know, to the 1400s and even maybe the late 1300s as well. So there's, there's been some, some issues, there's ecclesiastical issues. They come to a head, really, during the 16th century, you know, uh, late 15th century, in the time of the Renaissance popes. And what you have is various different abuses. You have an abuse such as absenteeism, for example, where a bishop does not reside within his own diocese. Um, you know, the, the kind of the classic, a perfect example of that, frankly, that affected even the highest office of the church is when the popes, you know, didn't live in, in uh, Rome, but rather moved their residence, you know, in the 14th century to Avignon in the south of France and lived there for nearly 70 years. So that's, that's a huge example of absenteeism. <laughs> I would say so. Problems, <laughs> kind of the problems that are associated with that. And we can talk about the, what, why that would be a problem in a little bit, but... So you have absenteeism, you have another abuse that's kind of associated with the hierarchy called pluralism, and pluralism is when you have one man who, who claims to be bishop or is bishop of several different dioceses, um, which mm. obviously would pose a serious problem. That kind of flows into the, you know, leads into the, the uh, abuse of absenteeism, because you right. can't be in you know, more than one place, right, at the same time, uh, unless you're Padre Pio and can buy locally. <laughs> but then, um, but he would never engage in that kind of abuse anyway. Um but then you have uh, so you have absenteeism, pluralism. You have nepotism here too. With the Renaissance popes, Sixtus the Fourth in particular begins to, uh, you know, try to control the papacy, keep the papacy within the family, so to speak, and appoints, you know, creates his nephews cardinals and um, kind of stocks the the or, you know the offices of the of the uh, curia with with his, his relatives and you know other popes do this as well. So you have nepotism, and then you also have you know finances and taxation. A lot of the money. Um, from you know, for example, annates, which are the you know the the first year's revenue uh, of a diocese with a newly installed bishop, those all go down to Rome, where they're supposed to. Uh, and so you have many of these different uh, you know fees that are collected through these different ecclesiastical offices and, and abuses associated with them, frankly, which then are taken from the diocese and sent down to Rome. And and again, in areas where you don't have a strong central ruler. Um, and Germany would, is, is a classic definition of that in this time period. Um, that builds a lot of political resentment among you know, lesser secular rulers, dukes and princes and things, when they see you know, money and revenue from their area, from their territory, from their land, although it's church land and church property, going down to, to this foreign prince, so to speak, to Rome, then you know, that's going to build political anger and resentment. You know, um, people see that. They see that they could use those resources better at home. And that begins to foster this resentment. And, and a lot of the, the resentment that's fostered to Rome stretches back to the time of the popes in Avignon, mm-hmm. um, where you know they leave Rome, they go live in the south of France. Um, they're really not the puppet of the French king. Most of the Avignon popes are not, but you know the impression is that they are. And so you have, which is understandable, you have other secular rulers around Christendom that are upset that the popes in France, that you know obviously he's favoring the French king, uh, even if he, you know, even if he doesn't really do that in practice, that's that's the impression, and so that begins to build resentment, anger, um, you, you know, uh, loss of respect, you know, scandal in Christendom as a, to uh, towards the papacy, which was established by Christ to be the visible, you know, office of unity in the church. And so, right. when the papacy itself becomes a source of disunity, you know, bad things will happen in the church, and that's what happens here at this time period. So again. Listeners, we're speaking with uh, Steve Weidenkopf. He's a lecturer at the Christendom College uh, Graduate School of Theology. He's got a new book out, The Real Story of Catholic History. I think you can tell uh, that uh, 
Professor Weidkopf is going to give you a a great deal of context about different eras of of church history and really immerse you in uh, what's going on. So please uh, go go pick up his book at uh, you can you can get it at Catholic Answers uh, Catholic dot com. You can probably get it on Amazon, I assume, um, anywhere where fine books are sold. Um, Professor Weidenkopf, um So there's there's numbers of there's these ecclesiastical abuses. There's problems with the uh, the papacy's uh, prestige is at a low ebb. I think a traditional charge of Protestants about against the Catholic Church at this time also is that the, the practice of the faith was somehow um, corrupt or um, insincere, that uh, the faithful were poorly catechized, the priests were not knowledgeable of the scriptures, uh, they couldn't say the Mass well. Where's the truth and where's the falsehood in that in that charge? And did that in any way lead to um, did that give did that give Luther some some ground to stand on as well? Yeah, that's that's a good question. And and you know, it's uh, I mean, the answer is is kind of simple but complex. It it kind of it depends, frankly. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in certain areas of Christendom, that that uh, in certain parts of of Christendom, that that's definitely the case where you have you know ill-formed clergy. Um, a clergy that's not you know, trained very well, that, uh, as you mentioned, can kind of barely say the Mass, uh, you know, ignorant in many ways, let's say, of the scriptures and teachings of the Church, um, you know, faithful who kind of flaunt the, the practice of the faith. Um, you know, that's not necessarily new, you know, at this period of time. I mean, uh, that, that occurs in, in many different historical time periods, but, but it depends. You know, in some areas of Christendom, that wasn't the case. You know, the, the faith was rooted very uh, well in certain areas uh, of Christendom and the culture, and people practiced the faith as, as uh, you know, as, as well as fallen yet redeemed human beings can. Sure. Um, and, and there were places where, you know, there was, there was there were, where they saw, you know, that there were these abuses that had kind of begun to crep, crep, creep in in certain places. And so reform was initiated. There were all kinds of different uh, movements of reform, you know, throughout the 15th century in particular, um, Spain is one area where a lot of these abuses are not uh, as prevalent as others. Um, you have a strong central monarchy in, in Spain, which is ultimately united with the marriage of Fer- uh, Fernando and Isabel. Mm-hmm. But you also have a very strong church uh, in, in Spain as well, and, and many different leading churchmen, Cardinal Jimenez, for example, who saw the need for reform. Uh, and initiated reform in Spain. So it kind of depends. You know, you go up to England. England at the time, you had great practice of the faith. The English people were very devoted to the Church, also very devoted to their monarch, um, you know, and practiced the faith uh, well. Other places, not so well. You know, the south of France, for example, um, you had a, a large heresy that erupted in the 13th century, um, known as Albigensianism, Catharism, and, you know, one of the reasons for why that exploded and, and uh, sustained itself for a number of years is because of an ill-formed clergy. A clergy who didn't know the faith well, and, and bishops who practiced these ecclesiastical abuses we mentioned earlier. Um, you know, Luther himself, you know, travels down to Rome at one point as part of his, uh, you know, his order sent him to Rome to go to a meeting. And you know, while he's there, he records later on that he was, you know, he was kind of disgusted with with the way that the Italians said mass. That, that uh, he didn't like Rome; it was kind of dirty and overcrowded and, and smelly and um, you know how much of that actually plays into his later revolt is is a bit of a disagreement. Many Protestant uh, historians and scholars see it as somewhat significant. You know, others kind of down t- tend to downplay it. 
Um, when you read his accounts of those things, you know, it really comes across as maybe not so much that he was upset with their poor practice of the faith as more of more, more of an ethnical or ethic rather ethnic kind of issue that uh, it was just a difference between northern Germans and and uh, more central Italians, the culture and practice and way of life that mm-hmm. he was just unfamiliar with and didn't uh, didn't really appreciate. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it depended, you know. But but again, there was a general sense within uh, you know Christendom as a whole that the church was in need of reform. Um, and in a sense of a reinvigorated Catholic life was was on the forefront of many people's minds, um, not just Luther, Calvin, and the other um, so-called reformers. Now, reform though was was actually already afoot uh, before Luther publishes his ninety-five theses, correct? Because you have things like uh, the Council of Constance, um, the Fifth Lateran Council that was convened. I think it ended right in fifteen seventeen. Um, and you, did, yeah, you, yeah, have, you have you um, have movements like Christian humanism, um, Erasmus, Thomas More writing. Um, can you can you just talk in brief about about some of those movements that there there was already this this bubbling of uh, reform efforts that were maybe accelerated by the the Protestant Revolution within the church. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's, uh, you know, you hit the, the kind of the high points there in terms of the Council of Constance in the early 15th century, which was called to, you know, kind of settle the the matter of what was known as the Great Western Schism, where at the time you had you know, three men claiming to be Pope. Uh, you know, and so that, you know, that whole situation was, was rectified through the Council. There were other things that, that uh, you know, reform decrees that were, that were at least talked about or discussed at the Council as well. Um, and some other things grew out of that, you know, that um, you know, but a lot of it in response to, to um, Jan Hus as well, the, the Bohemian heretic who had uh, you know, written a heretical treatise on the Church, but also had called for reform of the clergy in his native Bohemia and whatnot. Um, so you had that. You have, as you mentioned, this rise of Christian humanism, where you know Christian writers are, are you know, using the vernacular like Erasmus and more um, to at least, you know, help the church see or help the church kind of uh, motivate the church in another way, maybe, to to initiate a reform or to engage in reform. You had the rise of different, you know, lay movements of lay people trying to live more pious lives. You know, Thomas Akempis, the Imitation of Christ, uh, yeah. you know, these kinds of, of, of areas uh, of church life as well. So, you know, it wasn't just a top-down approach. It was also a bottom-up approach where many people, lay people, recognized the need for reform um, and, and kind of focused on reforming themselves first. And then, you know, growing closer to Christ in the church that way, and then being able to reform the church uh, from a larger perspective, a more uh, community perspective. So, yeah, there were many initiatives and movements afoot. You mentioned the Fifth Lateran Council, you know, that was initially called by Julius II, uh, finished by Leo X, and it, and it finishes several months before uh, Luther publishes his 95 Theses here in October of 1517. So. Um, and at that at that council, there were you know reform decrees um, discussed about uh, dealing with these ecclesiastical abuses of trying to develop ways in which to train and form clergy priests better. Um, unfortunately, in that case, you know the, the council's work kind of end, ended only a few months before Luther began his revolt. And um, you know all throughout church history, you see that for a councils for conciliar decrees rather to be um, kind of affected to become more. Um, uh, you know, implemented in the church's life, it requires usually a strong pope, or a pope who at least makes it his the aim of his pontificate to implement those conciliar decrees. Um, and you're at the tail end here of the Renaissance popes. You know, when the, when that Fifth Lateran Council ends with Leo the Tenth, and 
and they're dealing with a lot of other different things, political, economic issues, and whatnot. And they're, you know, they're they're kind of, you know, nominally associated, or they know that the reform needs to happen, um, but it just doesn't become really a part of their major program. And you have to wait a little bit into the 16th century to get to the pontificate of St. Pius V, and he really then, um, or Paul III, who first calls it Council of Trent, but then St. Pius V, who then implements the decrees from Trent that brings about the authentic reform of the Church in the Catholic Reformation. Yeah, thanks, Steve. Um, this is, again, Steve Weidenkopf with The Real Story of Catholic History. It's just out from uh, Catholic Answers Press. Highly recommend you you pick it up. You're going to be a much better informed Catholic. You're going to be a much better informed person. Um, now, at the center of, or at least a traditional claim, that what's at the center of Luther's uh, motivation to write the 95 Theses is this question of indulgences indulgences what are indulgences are they still a valid part of catholic theology and why was what was luther upset about with with indulgences yeah so it's a big question i'm sorry i said that's kind of a big question i'm sorry but you know take it in parts that's right. Yeah. So, so an indulgence is you know you go to the catechism and, and get a definition of the indulgence. Uh, you know, but uh, an indulgence basically is is the remission of the temporal punishment due to sin whose guilt has already been forgiven in the sacrament of confession. Uh, so the the way to somewhat understand indulgences is, is, you know, when we sin, right, we commit a free will defense against God. We we can be sorry. We have contrition for that sin. We go to confession. And we go to confession, we receive absolution uh, for that sin, so the guilt of that sin is forgiven, right? God forgives the sin through the sacrament of, of confession. However, there is a, a temporal effect uh, of our sin, right, that remains that we need to then make restitution for. Um, and one way in which to do that is to perform penances, right? Um, but the Church also, through her ministry and through the merits, the salvific merits of Christ and the saints, is able to, what we call in, in Catholic theology, this treasury of grace, the, that the Church, through the ministry of the Pope, is able to dispense from this treasury of grace to, uh, in, in what's called an indulgence, or through an indulgence, so that we're able to then um, be free, either partially or fully, of the temporal effect of those sins that we've committed. Um, again, there are certain prescribed conditions that are associated with receiving that indulgence true during the time of the 16th century as it is today. So the doctrine of indulgences still exists. Uh, we're still able to receive an indulgence for various penitential works and activities uh, in our own day and age. Um, perhaps maybe the most famous one was, I think, back in the year, the great jubilee of the year 2000. There were all kinds of indulgences associated with that, going on pilgrimage to Rome, visiting the different churches of Rome. Even there were different churches throughout um the world that were established or, or were certified as being, you know, uh, jubilee churches where you could go and pray. Usually, you you uh, go to confession, you um, you know pray for the uh, intentions of the Holy Father, and then you you perform an act of, of penance uh, as well, and you can receive the indulgence. So that was true also in Luther's time. Um, one specific activity that was allowed in Luther's time, which is no longer a part of, of Catholic um, discipline, is the granting of an indulgence for the giving of alms for the construction of a building of public importance. Mm -hmm. So what happens is Julius II uh, wants to remake, you know, rebuild St. Peter's Basilica in Rome, 
And obviously, uh, you know, constructing this magnificent structure, which he envisions, um, it requires a lot of financing, a lot of money. Excuse me, he is the Pope at this time, correct? Julius II is the Pope during, in 1517. Julius II is, yeah, Julius II is Pope early in in the 16th century, and he, so he wants to rebuild St. Peter's, and so what he does is he allows for the granting of an indulgence for those who give alms to the Church for that specific purpose. And he then commissions indulgence preachers to go around Christendom and preaching this indulgence. Um, and they do that. And then later on he dies, and, and the indulgences are carried on by Pope Leo X. Um, and so these indulgence preachers are sent throughout Christendom, and they go and they preach, and, and people, again, can receive the indulgence. You know, uh, They've been to confession. They've, the guilt of the sin has been forgiven. They receive an indulgence by giving money and alms, which is a penitential act, for the rebuilding of St. Peter's Basilica. However, there's a lot of, because of the way the church was, is structured at the time, or at least the way the finances and taxation of the church is structured at the time, is that it was, it was allowed that bishops, you know, had to grant, first of all, the, um, uh, the, the, abor- the ability of the indulgence preacher to come to their dioceses, or their diocese and, and uh, preach the indulgence. And in return for kind of granting the, the permission for the indulgence preacher to come to their diocese, the bishops received a certain pr- percentage of the money that's raised as a result of the preaching of the indulgence. Uh, and then the rest of the money was supposed to go then down to Rome for the rebuilding of St. Peter's Basilica. So you can see that, that set up that way, um, there's there's ripe opportunity for abuse uh, and for corruption. <laughs> I would say uh, so. Just, yeah. <laughs> and sadly, you know, sadly that did occur. Um, and not only that, but you had many different, uh, these indulgence preachers, most of them, or many of them were Dominicans, not, not solely, but many of them were. And, many, and some of these men, most of them were, you know, good, honest men who, who you know, uh, did what, what the Church had asked of them and, and were, you know, were, were performing this, this, um, this preaching mission, you know, on behalf of, of the people and for the good of their souls. But there were, there were some who were, you'd say, less than pious, who were not well-formed in theology, or even if they were well-formed in theology, they, the way that they spoke about indulgences and the way that the manner in which they, they taught and preached about them uh, kind of preyed on the ignorance of the people and made it seem as if by, by giving me, the indulgence preacher, money, you're, you, know, you can spring yourself or your loved ones out of purgatory. You know, it's like getting a get-out-of-jail-get-out-of-purgatory-free card kind of thing. Which again is not church teaching. That was not the doctrine of the, of the church at the time. That's not the doctrine of the church today. But again, you had preachers in order to increase their haul of, of money, you know, uh, preached in, a, in, a, in an inappropriate and un-Catholic manner, frankly. And so, uh, one of these individuals is Johann Tetzel, a German Dominican who was operating around the area where, where Luther was at the time. And so Luther and many others, he's not the only one, but many others were upset at the kind of, of you know, less than Christian, this, uh, you know, malformed preaching that was being given to the people. And so as the story goes, that, that prompts that, among other things, prompts Luther to publish his 95 Theses. Now, what I, what I want to point out, though, is that many people think that kind of the story ends there, that Luther was upset with the uh, abuse of the preaching of indulgences, you know, the so-called sell, sell, selling of indulgences, he railed against that in the 95 Theses. The Church didn't like that because she's concerned about money, and he got in mm-hmm. trouble. That's right. kind of the standard narrative, right, right. Of what happens with Luther. Right. But that's not really what happens. When you, look at the, when you look at the 95 Theses and read them in particular, um, what gets Luther into trouble is the heretical proposition that he puts into the 95 Theses where he questions the authority of the Pope to even grant an indulgence. Mm. That's what gets him into trouble, because that's the theological issue 
where he begins to dismantle the church's authority uh, and dismantle and attacks really the papacy and rebels against the authority of the papacy. Now, can I? Well, I just wanted to ask you to to press pause there because if you could take just a step back now, because this questioning of the Pope's authority, it also get that's wrapped up with his own personal struggle that he's going through with his doubts about um, the efficacy of confession and the assurance of his his own forgiveness of his own sins, correct? And the kind of revolution that he's having in his own his own theological understanding of things, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, when Luther was in, you know, to back up even further, I mean, Luther was a very diligent uh, and bright student. Uh, you know, he graduated with his master's, his undergraduate master's degrees, and, and his father wanted him to pursue a legal career. He was going to go on to do legal studies mm. and become a lawyer, but then he has this kind of conversion experience, different uh, accounts of that. But ultimately, he ends up joining the strict Augustinian monastery in Erfurt in Germany. And it's and in the monastery, Luther is a kind of model monk. I mean, he does all the things that, that the monks are supposed to do, follows the rules, the regulations. But but there he kind of has, as you point out, this kind of crisis of, of I think we really call it a crisis of faith, as it is more so kind of a crisis of salvation. Like, yeah. uh, he was focused on, on whether he was saved, right? The question of how do I know that I'm saved was right. kind of the focus of Luther's life. Um, and, you know, going to confession, you know, uh, performing all the penances and fasting and, and, pra- and penitential practices, rather, the monastery, he, he never really felt assured that he was saved. And as he, he so he's lecturing on, you know, the books of the, uh, the Scripture, uh, he gets, you know, he starts to focus on Paul's letters, in particular the Epistle to the Romans, and it's through his, his research and his writing and his, his kind of commentary on, on Romans that Luther then develops this whole, how to solve his own internal question of how do I know I'm saved. He comes up with this doctrine of sola fide, which is faith alone. All I have to do is have faith in Jesus Christ as my Savior, and then I'm justified in the eyes of God. That's all I have to do. There's no works, there's no right. way of life, there's nothing else I have to do in order to justify to be justified. Right. Um, so yeah, so that so it's then, then that, that personal, once he kind of solves or, or at least ameliorates that personal question, he then takes it further and, and, and launches it into, uh, you know, to an attack on the hierarchy of the Church, and even more specifically, an attack on the papacy. <laughs> and so, what an amazing, what an amazing uh, confluence of the, the personal with the political and the, and the theological. It's, uh, it's really quite fascinating. So, he, he begins to question the very... Uh, authority of the of the Pope to dispense indulgences to grant indulgences, and you you point out in your in your book, which is again the real story of Catholic history, and, and this book is not just on the Reformation. I might point out to the to our listeners, it, it goes through the entire two thousand years of of Catholic history, and uh, and then also has some special topics. Uh, that it deals with as well, and it's very wide-ranging and, and very well done. Uh, again, so so get pick that up, everyone. Real story of Catholic history. Um, but you you mentioned that the the church is kind of slow in responding to the um, the the depth of of Luther's attacks, or the they they, they it takes them a while to kind of get their hands on what they're dealing with here. And um, that contributes to his revolutionary 
spirit and claims kind of uh, growing and, and gaining traction. Can you talk a little bit about what happens after the 95 theses are posted? Yeah, so so once those are, you know, made known, they're actually, you know, they're sent to his bishop, um, bishop uh, Archbishop Albert of Mainz, who then sends them down to Rome as well. And so theologians examine them and study them in Rome and, and you know, identify that there are certain problems with a number of the propositions that he puts in, into his, his uh, theses. And so he's actually summoned to come to Rome and to answer for those, those uh, you know, heretical um, teachings. Uh, he refuses to do so. Right? He claims that he can't travel, and that you know he also knows that it's probably not going to end well for him, and so he, he decides not to go. Um, and then, and then eventually, the Pope sends his own personal representative, a man by the name of Cardinal Cajetan, uh, to go to Germany. He was there on business for uh, for other matters too, but part of his mission was to go and to have a meeting uh, with Luther and try to to talk to him and reconcile him and get him to to calm down and stop publishing things. Um, and so Cajetan meets with, with Luther, and they discuss these things. He tries to get him to recant his erroneous teachings. Luther refuses to do so. Um, you know, they, Cajetan loses his, his, uh, his temper with Luther because Luther was an individual who, um, you know, was very, uh, what's the word to describe him? He, he wasn't, uh, it wasn't necessarily very logical in his, his arguing or even in his writings. He was, um, polemical. He would say things like, well, he, yeah, say again. He was very polemical. Yeah, very polemical and not very, not very, uh, you know, structured, really. I mean, mm-hmm. and just kind of, he was, he was, his focus was obfuscation, right? So, I mean, uh, Kajetan, you know, he would say things like, well, I won't change my teaching unless I'm convinced, you know, unless there's a, a, a you know, a teaching, a direct teaching from the Pope, a document from the Pope that says that I can't teach these things. So then Kajetan, you know, shows him and brings to him a document or a letter that says, well, here's what the Pope says on this issue. And, and then Luther, you know, then he changed his tact and says, well, okay, you know, it has to be a teaching from an ecumenical council or something. You know, so he's, he's constantly just trying to skirt around the issue and find different ways in which to not agree mm-hmm. with church teaching. So Kajetan loses his temper, Luther loses his temper, they argue with each other, and, you know, they yell at each other, and then the meeting ends, and there's really nothing um, more that, that happens to that. He, Luther does later apologize for his behavior to Kajetan because his, his superior told him to do so. So he does. But then, you know, later on, things kind of really begin to pick up when other um, uh, university professors and theologians who are faithful to the Church begin to read some of the writings that Luther comes out with, some of his commentaries and lectures that are being printed under his name, and uh, they begin to challenge and question the things that he's writing. Eventually, this also comes to a head when he has a, a big uh, debate at Leipzig with uh, a Catholic theologian named Johann Eck. And Eck is brilliant in his debating of Luther because he's able to point out the, the theological similarities of Luther's teachings with Jan Hus, mm. that, that, uh, that 15th century uh, Czech heretic, a Bohemian heretic I mentioned earlier, where the two of them very much attacked the papacy, they you know, wanted to uh, reimagine the Church in terms of her hierarchy and her organization. They both called for, or at least advocated for, a national Church, you know, a Church that was independent and beholden to the secular ruler of a, of a particular uh, area, not beholden to the Pope in Rome, which, again, strikes at the very fundamental aspect of being Catholic, right? To be Catholic means you are in communion with right. the Pope in Rome. Uh, so, so Eck points that out, and then once that happens, then kind of the wheels begin to fall off in terms of, or I shouldn't say the wheels begin to fall off, but rather the scales begin to fall off people's eyes, and they begin to realize Luther is not just this, you know, university professor who's, you know, kind of your your contra- your, you know, your prototypical controversial, radical university professor. He's he's formulating and fomenting something 
radically different, right? His his attack and his teachings are uh, much more dangerous than perhaps initially thought or believed. Um, so we can credit Johann X for kind of pointing that out. And then eventually what happens is Luther, um, you know, refuses to recant, continues to refuse to recant. Eventually, uh, in the summer of 1520, Pope Leo X issues a bull known as Exerge Domini, in which he condemns 41 uh, of Luther's heretical teachings that he's published over the last several years. Luther is asked to recant and give up his teachings, and he refuses to do so, and then the revolution is, is in complete and open full force at that point. So, Steve, we have about one minute, but can you explain in, in about that time how the political authorities of the time in Germany also took advantage of this, at their, to, to take advantage of it against the, the Holy Roman Emperor and against the, uh, the papacy to kind of increase their own, their own power? Yeah, there's many secular rulers at the time, you know, saw this as an opportunity, saw Luther's teachings and writings as an opportunity and the kind of revolution he was fomenting as an opportunity to, uh, you know, to become more independent, uh, as you mentioned, of the Holy Roman Emperor as well as, as of the Pope in Rome. Uh, and so they begin to back him and shield him. His own, his own particular secular ruler, uh, Elector Frederick of Saxony, you know, shields him from the Holy Roman Emperor. Once Luther is actually condemned as a heretic from the secular government at the Diet of Worms in 1521, you know, Frederick kidnaps him. You know, Luther knew he was going to be kidnapped, holds him up in a castle and kind of protects him from both, you know, uh, secular and church, uh, you know, judgment. And so they saw Luther as, as this, you know, this all wrapped up in this German nationalism and this resentment that we talked about earlier. They saw him as kind of this, this symbol or this opportunity to, uh, you know, to kind of stake out their own claim, so to speak, and to uh, grab some church land and mm-hmm. to, uh, you know, become more independent from the church. And, uh, and so that helps to foster and sustain the movement, you know, without that political backing, really, um, or at least those who, who, you know, the Holy Roman Emperor obviously was in union with the church and, and condemned Luther as a heretic, wanted to to prosecute him, but, you know, he, he, again, is not this over, he's not an absolute ruler in this area we call Germany, um, and so he's kind of beholden to many of the princes to follow what he wants, and they don't, <laughs> you know, and so that allows Luther to continue, and then eventually it really um, makes permanent the uh, the cleaving of Christendom, so to speak. Right, and, and we're going to have to leave it there, Steve. Thank you for this really enlightening tour through uh, early modern European history, and um, getting out some of the, the context and the, the, the facts about the Protestant ref- revolution that began on this day 500 years ago. And uh, folks go out and pick up uh, Professor Weidenkopf's book, The Real Story of Catholic History, uh, Amazon, Catholic.com, anywhere where fine books are sold. Uh, thank you very much, Steve, and I hope our paths cross again. Yeah, thank you, Thaddeus. I appreciate it very much to have me on the show, and uh, I do hope we uh, we get to meet each other. Okay, so that was Professor Steve Weidenkopf of Christendom College, the author of The Real Story of Catholic History, Answering 20 Centuries of Anti-Catholic Myths. We were so pleased to have him on the show today, and we are thankful that you have been listening to Red Sea Roundup, and we encourage you to remember, when choosing between the values of heaven and the values of earth, to always round up and have a blessed All Saints Day.